Hello everyone and welcome to this very special edition of PharmaCast in recognition of International Women's Day. Today we will be discussing secondary breast cancer which is severely misunderstood and really under-recognised in comparison to all the pink fluffiness of primary breast cancer which we're all actually really aware of due to the multiple campaigns. My name is Erin McGee, I'm a research fellow in the school and I'll be your host today. But more importantly, I'm joined by three wonderful women. Today, I have with me Jennifer Willis, photographer and founder of the Scene to be Heard exhibition, which raises awareness and advocacy of secondary breast cancer through photographic art. Joanne McGee, a patient living with secondary breast cancer and also my mum. And finally, we have our very own Dr. Neve Buckley, reader in personalised medicine at the School of Pharmacy. So thank you women for being here with us today. I think it'll be a really interesting discussion and I can't wait to, to talk about everything with you all. Um, so Jennifer, to start with you, uh, so our whole day next week will be about the Scene to be Heard exhibition. I was at the opening night of it in Belfast, I think um, probably last Easter or, or summertime. Uh, last, uh, I think we opened in at the end of March, wasn't it? At the it? end of March, end yeah. Of March. It doesn't and seem carried like through yeah. to the first week in, in May. Yes, mm -hmm. it was it was a really amazing um, and impactful experience, especially me for having such a personal and close relationship um, with it. So I'd love to hear more about what's your personal connection to this and how did you create this, this whole exhibition? Uh, well, basically it started with uh, a friend. Uh, I'm, I do a lot of sports photography and uh, one of the rugby mums told me her, her, her story and I offered to take some photographs of her when she told me that her cancer had returned and this time it was incurable. And... At the time, I didn't realise really even the significance of what she was saying, but I knew that she was telling me that, um, you know, this was not um, a, a good diagnosis at all. And uh, so I made the offer to take photographs of her and her boys and her, her husband. And, and then things just sort of progressed from there. We went out for a walk one day and I took some photographs of her. And there was one photograph that I took that... Um, I think made her think that I had captured something of her and she, she asked me if I would photograph her to the end of her um, cancer journey and I knew what that meant um, and I knew it wasn't obviously going to be easy but no matter what it was going to be like for me it's nothing compared to what she and her family were going to be going through so I said yes and uh, got her into the studio um, before I did, we actually had a you know a good cup of coffee and a good chat, and and she told me so much about the um, the shortcomings and the misunderstanding and the lack of choice, even that she's had even through her primary breast cancer journey. You know, she'd wanted a sec uh, double mastectomy and gene testing and that was refused um, on the grounds that they don't take away healthy tissue and you know she didn't want a reconstruction yet she could have had that but they wouldn't give her what she actually did want and I think it was like nine years later then um, um, 
she had the news then that her cancer had uh, not only returned but um, had spread and it's at the point where the breast cancer cells have spread to another part of the body that it's um, a secondary breast cancer and therefore regarded as in well it is incurable and the things that she was telling me were just well you know you, you just sort of think that shouldn't be the case you know if you want a double mastectomy to get rid of you know have more chance of getting rid of breast cancer cells in your your body you know why why are you not given that choice but it wasn't only that anyway um she told me about a small group of of uh fellow secondary breast cancer uh girls that she was she had got friendly with she told me that she um there was no uh, support group in northern ireland for secondary breast cancer but they'd got these few um girls uh, together and i s- the day that I had her in the studio, I captured one special photograph and I knew that it was there. And I thought to myself, you know, I can maybe do something to help to raise awareness because I actually hadn't known what secondary breast cancer meant. And so I said to her, um, you know, I think I could do something. Um, why don't you show that photograph to your your friends and... Um, you know, I think we could maybe, if I got to photograph more women, put together an exhibition. Before I knew it, I was sitting in um, one of the women's houses in amongst um, seven or eight of young women and showing them some of my photographs, telling them about how I sort of work in the studio, which is in a very informal way. I just chat to people. And and, and um, so I... Uh, they said, yes, we'd like you to do that. And I suddenly realised what, a, you know, as I was driving home that night, what a, what a task I'd taken on. Because not only did I know that I had to do it because of the situation that these women um, were in, but I felt that I had to do it very quickly because I wanted every woman that w- was going to take part to actually see um, their image in exhibition, see the impact of what they we're going to be taking part in. So uh, seven months, I think, almost to the day. And we opened in uh, in the gallery and yeah. and it w- it's still going. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really taken off as well. I remember mum telling me that she was getting involved in it and that she was going to have her first nude photo shoot in her <laughs> 50s. First <laughs> topless photo shoot. <laughs> And yeah. uh, I remember her going up and, you know, just being so thankful that there was something to be involved in, finally, um, to do something about this. I think it's a great thing that you've brought all these women together across the country that wouldn't otherwise know each other mm-hmm. and get to share their experiences of having secondary breast cancer. Um, and I think it's certainly has potential to be very far reaching, even you know, across the water um, to kind of make sure that over here that we are seen as, as just as important and, you know, can access the same medicines, the same treatment as those in England, Scotland and Wales. Um, very interesting point as well about your friend Cheryl, who asked for a double mastectomy 
and genetic testing but was denied that and I think if she had been if she was granted that wish she might not be in this position today uh, yes and she certainly even if she was in this she wouldn't be so far down yeah. you know who's to say that a breast cancer cell hadn't already spread yeah but she most certainly would not be for, so far down the track yeah. as she is and she's not you know whenever you hear a story like that once you think oh that's that's terrible that's a shame or those doctor that doctor should have listened but it's not just one story I've now photographed 23 women and have uh, two more already lined up to photograph um, because women want to be involved in this or many of them and they want to have the opportunity to tell their story um, and it's 20 times over you know not everybody wants a reconstruction not everybody not every woman minds being being flat and i've photographed women who who you know they just did not want to be lopsided and you know i photographed one girl who's uh, i practically put her um well it looks like i photographed her breast in a sling because she didn't want to be lopsided and she didn't want a uh, reconstruction but she's the one that has to live with it and um, you know the more that I've gone through this actually very quickly very uh, early on I realized that this is uh, this is a women's health issue about uh, very often not being listened to Um 31 women a, a, a day each day die of secondary breast cancer and um, 11,500 a year across the UK, um, 80 of those are men. The, the number, the, you know, men get can get um, breast cancer, but the number of men who have secondary breast cancer um, is very, very small indeed, you know. So um, this is something that we really need to take on, mm -hmm. absolutely. head on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Mum, if you wouldn't mind sharing your diagnosis story from start all those many many years ago to now and how you met Jennifer and got involved in the exhibition yeah sure I um I was diagnosed with primary breast cancer at the age of 29 in 1998 um at the time I was also pregnant with my second child um so because of that uh, I should also add there was no, no family history at all because of the pregnancy um, instead of um, taking away the tumour it was decided that I would have a mastectomy which was fine I was more than happy just to get rid of as much as possible um, I after that I had radiotherapy unfortunately the cancer had already spread to several of my lymph nodes um, so I had uh, radiotherapy and chemotherapy and about a year after that I decided to have reconstructive um, to have the breast reconstructed everything went you know relatively smoothly um, breast cancer is awful it's an awful disease whether it's primary breast cancer or secondary breast cancer it's um, it's just horrible, and I went on then to be. Um, I don't like the words cancer free. Um, I would describe it as being in remission for 
22 years. And after having some just nondescript back pain over a period of time, not thinking for one second that it was anything to do with the breast cancer that I'd had you know, many, many years previously, I'd popped along to the GP a couple of times. Um, I guess with my age as well, um, you know, it was, it was put down to aching joints, pre-menopause at the time, um, and really and truly I didn't have any reason to think that it was anything other than that. Until one day I was getting ready for work and went to get up off the chair in the kitchen and got up so far and literally stopped. I just could not move. The pain was just absolutely horrendous. Um, got an emergency appointment with the GP who uh, red flagged me to the breast clinic, um, which was quite a shock for me because I didn't, I didn't think the two were, were connected. Um, and I was, I was diagnosed uh, on the 22nd of December 2020 with um, secondary breast cancer. Um, one of the things that I would really, really like to change is some sort of a duty of care by the oncologists or GPs to flag you know, to, to let us know what the red flags are of secondary breast cancer. I didn't know, you know, and with that, not knowing where I am now, there's also a little bit of guilt on my part. Should I have known? Was it my responsibility to, to find out? Yeah, you, you could argue that, that that is part of it, but, but surely if us as primary breast cancer patients, once we're discharged from the system, um, we should be given information about the red flags of secondary breast cancer and what to look for. And GPs should know what the red flags are. Um, it may not have made a difference to me. You know, I might still have got secondary breast cancer, but it might have been caught a little bit earlier. Um, which might have made a difference to me. My secondary breast cancer has spread to my spine and um, my clavicle and the soft tissue um, around the side where my mastectomy was. And there's a real misunderstanding out there that when breast cancer spreads, you know, whenever, whenever I say to someone, oh, I have cancer in my bones now, it's not bone cancer. It's secondary breast cancer. The breast cancer cells travel through my lymphatic system through to my bones and have, and have taken up residence in there. That is secondary breast cancer when it spreads to another part of the body, be that bones, brain, skin, um, liver, lungs. It's still breast cancer cells. Um, and, and there's a lot of misunderstanding around that, which hopefully, you know, is beginning to change. Um, certainly there's been so much more education that has come from Jennifer's exhibition. Um, you know, the, the people that I've spoken to who have seen it, um, 
I mean, particularly even three of my really good friends uh, went along to see it, probably a little bit reluctantly, if I'm being honest, um, because I told them what to expect. And it's not, it's not an easy exhibition to see, but it is so, so important, so important just to get that, that out there. Um, they, were, they were really surprised to see all the portraits of the ladies and Jennifer also created a, a video where we all spoke. Uh, there's about a 45-minute video that was also available at, within the exhibition space. And, you know, that's the sort of thing that our medical professionals need to see when they're training, not whenever they're in post, not whenever they become oncologists. They should see that and listen to our voices. We know what we need. We need so much more support. We need so much more um, availability to trials. Unfortunately, in Northern Ireland, we're, we're missing out a lot on clinical trials. And, you know, it's heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. We've lost five of the ladies from our support group within, since September really, so within six months, five ladies have have gone have left their families um and it's just heartbreaking you know if if we had more access to clinical trials perhaps deirdre kelly vanda morag and ailish would still be here and would have been given more time with their families and more chance of living with this disease and not just dying from it. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good point, Mum. I think we need we need to get to a place where secondary cancer in general, so not just secondary breast cancer, but it's it's a chronic condition. You can live with it. It won't kill you. Um, you know, you you could be diagnosed in your fifties and there would be treatment available so that you could live your best life. Um, you know, for longer than 10 years, which seems to kind of be the, the maximum at this point. Um, the median, I, th I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Dave, I think that the median survival rate for secondary breast cancer at the moment, and I know the statistics are way out of date, but they're saying between two and five years, which is really, really scary. I'm two years in, you know, so to be faced with that is 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 frightening. It's frightening. Mm -hmm. And the, in to a large part, certainly uh, medically, you have to go through it on your own because not many people know that um, there's actually only one clinical nurse specialist for secondary breast cancer in the whole of Northern Ireland, and this is something that we mention every time that we're talking. Uh, there's there's one in in the Belfast Trust, and you know it's such a, an inadequate provision, and the women get told of their diagnosis quite often in A and E and um, or by their oncologist with nobody else in the room. There's nobody. It's not like you see in the TV ads and then in the um, the posters with a nurse um, sitting holding their hand to explain things. It's um, here's your diagnosis and here's a few leaflets. Oh, and maybe they have the chemotherapy helpline, and really. The, you know that's the chemotherapy helpline is is 
no good to them in terms of uh, support and that's why the, you know them getting together themselves and even the support that we've we've been able to have as part of seeing to be heard you know to see the young ones going out uh, celebrating um, you know as a, a group of four or five um, and enjoying a night on the town after our opening night I mean there was something mm-hmm. very special about that and you know that we've gathered together in various social situations and it's incredibly humbling to be uh, included in that you know a sort of an honorary member of the secondary <laughs> breast cancer team without having the downside yeah but yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things you've pointed out there is so important is the lack of information the lack of knowledge of actually how many cases of secondary breast cancer are there not only in Northern Ireland, but in the UK. We've been asking for this information for 15, over 15 years. NHS England did commit to trying to collect that information, but it really wasn't being collected fully. There has been, obviously in the last year, NHS England and NHS Wales have uh, committed to completing a more thorough audit and luckily now in Northern Ireland we now have the commitment from Cancer Focus NI to help collect this information because until we know how many people there are how can there be a proper service how can we give people the support until we know how many people there are and gather those people and ask them what they want because that's the number you know as a researcher as a, as a medical professional it it's not up to starting us. Point. Yeah, it's right. not up to us to tell people what they want. It's the people living with the disease, and hopefully, through this knowledge, we can change it. As you said, to living with the disease, not dying from it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And most women, most women with secondary breast cancer have already had a period of a primary diagnosis. It's not always the case, but so they they are able to witness that firsthand all the treatment and care that was available to them when they were curable and then the real like change the disparity and then becoming a secondary patient you're no longer curable and we don't have any support for you it seems i remember when mum got diagnosed i was like well surely there's a support group can you go and do something because you were so involved in that before don't mix the dying with the The, uh, curable the ones that have got to ring the bell and Uh people like um your mum you know maybe sort of even metaphorically rung that bell in the past and you know what joanne said um about not enough information being given um i think also there's a, a great lack of knowledge amongst uh, you know, a, a, somebody like Joanne, the first port of call is, is the GP. Um, and w- GPs are not always aware of what the symptoms are. And I've photographed women that have been told they've been too young, that it's blocked milk ducts, that it's because they're breastfeeding, that it's because they're too hormonal. One was too anxious. Um, and, th- you know, th- they've been given antibiotics, courses of antibiotics, referred for physiotherapy, months pass, and you know that cancer's growing inside all the time. And uh, one was given an inhaler, 
for, for a month, and that was another delay. Um, but the number that, you know, given antibiotics, painkillers, or referred for something else, instead of if they've had primary breast cancer in the past, um, it should be the first differential looked at and counted out before they start, you know. And even, you know, you mentioned about um, most 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 women having had uh, primary breast cancer at some stage, and yes, that's true, but some some are diagnosed immediately. Uh, but there actually seems to be a growing number that are diagnosed with secondary quite quickly after their primary, maybe within six weeks, a couple of months, three months. And I photographed a beautiful young girl, and she's got four children, and she, was, she had been... Um, uh, pregnant with her uh, fourth child and she was told for months you know this was because she was breastfeeding and too hormonal and and everything and you know by the time she was diagnosed her spine was on the point of collapse because nobody recognized that actually you know a young woman walking in on a zimmer frame for physiotherapy um you know the clue is is there and they were too busy sort of th saying that you know it was because she'd been pregnant and she'd had a mastectomy well, what happened whenever she has been diagnosed with with primaries was her her mammogram and this happens and this we also have to make women aware of this mammogram you can your the breast cancer can be mammogram occult so it's not not picked up in a mammogram but if there's a lump or something there and the, and the the woman is particularly concerned about it you know and they keep pushing they can you know maybe be referred for a biopsy or for um another type of scan and this girl was in that situation and she had an mri and i because you know, it makes me think, well, well, why on earth didn't they pick up the secondaries then? Because they were probably already there. And she said, they only scanned me from, they only scanned my chest. They had her in the MRI scanner, but only scanned her for, across the, the breast area. And three months later, I think, um, you know, I'm talking, you know, um, sort of approximations here, but three months later she's diagnosed with secondaries and she lives with that you know had they scanned me three months ago you know the, had they scanned my whole body you know the, this might have been picked up then and it seems there seems to be so much uh short-term um uh, savings you know but unfortunately long-term consequences for the women and again i think so much of this comes back to that awareness of actually how how common it is because like doctors will work on the law of averages of what is the most common what what is most likely to be happening because it is obviously you know when you're faced with a completely blank diagnosis there's there's lots of possibilities so obviously if they know something that the 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 chances of it being there are higher than because at the moment we don't know what the chances are you know they are estimating what maybe 35,000 people living with secondary breast cancer in the UK but already I think we realize that that number is completely out of out of whack you know that I think the the latest numbers from England alone are over 50,000 so already you can see how wrong that is so already we're probably at at least double 
So if therefore something, the chances of something, if it happening are at least double, then the doctors can take that into account and as I said, have it more at the front of their 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 diagnostic pipeline because otherwise they're dismissing if they're saying oh well it's really unlikely to be this why I don't want we we don't test for it but if, if they understand actually that it is much more likely and hopefully also with the improved research we can get those tests earlier on so that we can know okay it's not that by no means is there a good type of cancer we we all know that but if we can get the molecular test to give us an indication of this is a person who is at higher risk of of the cancer recurring therefore we can we can change their cancer journey to make sure they are given that support they're given those extra scans they're given that extra reassurance along the journey while somebody who we think is at much lower risk maybe has that opportunity to not have to maybe have the scanxiety of the having to come back and have those scans on a regular basis but equally they also know though that that service is there if they need it that's, that's a very good point you make about the scans because um uh, whenever women are going through primary breast cancer they get very regular scans and then after five years it stops and they're released out into the general population being told that they're no more likely to have um a recurrence of breast cancer than the general population and that's simply not the case and Joanne you can speak as somebody you know I, I understand that the figures are uh, approximately one in three of women who have had primary breast cancer will go on at some stage and in Joanne's case 22 years later um, to be diagnosed with secondary breast cancer. And that's different to the general population, which is the one Very, in seven or exactly, one in eight. Exactly. And, of course, and also the risks changing you know, by your age group. So really you don't enter the normal scanning process until yeah. the age of 50. So you know those, those scans, whether it be once a year or something, need to continue for women. And, and if they choose not to have them, that's fine. You know, um, because some some want to know lots, some want uh, you know, so others others don't. But surely, to goodness, they should have a, a choice as to um, you know, and know that every every year there's, there's something looking inside their body to make sure that they're not having um, or that you know uh, it hasn't started somewhere else. And it's having it's it's the right type of scans as well. Um, I was attending the hospital after my five years they asked me was I happy to be discharged and I requested that I keep coming every year so I've been getting yearly mammograms and mammogram Um, occult you know uh, so that would never have picked up the secondary breast cancer that I have developed so, you know, it's the right type of scans we need. And yes, it's going to cost more money, but I'm darn sure I'm costing the NHS a lot more money now than I would have been maybe even having three yearly, you know, scan a proper, I don't know, an MRI or whatever, something that delves a little bit deeper on a more regular basis that would have caught things at a very early stage. And, you know, I might not be sitting here now talking to you. Mm-hmm. And mum, see when you were discharged from the system the first time, 
based on the the education that you had had through that experience and that the doctors and healthcare team had given you, did you ever think that your cancer would come back? Like, was that ever in the back of your mind? Oh, yes. I mean, it never goes away. Um, 22 years is a long time. And, you know, it, it never, ever left my head. You know, it's just like that monkey on your shoulder that's always kind of there. As the years went on, that niggle got less and less because, I, I mean, I really did think that I'm home in a boat. This is not going to come into my life again. This isn't going to be a huge part of my existence anymore. And until it was, you know, um, it, it's always there. It's always there. You always worry about reoccurrence, but we need to have the knowledge to know what to look for. Um, knowledge is power. And, and if we don't have the knowledge, we're not going to know the signs. And uh, women being discharged, in fact, before they're, you know, it, because many, many of them that I've photographed have been photographed um, or have had secondary diagnosis well within the five-year period after primary. So they need to know what to look out for during that period. And, you know, the leaflets are there, but they're not being... Um, you know the infographics we've even reproduced infographics and uh, the, the women themselves are trying to get them into cancer places but they're meeting resistance and GP surgeries need to face reality for these women and and make themselves more aware of you know one of them comes in with a bad back or even tummy problems or a cough that's not going away or a sore shoulder or you know any or headaches um they need to first of all look at the possibility there should be that big red flag on the front of their files saying this woman has had primary breast cancer these are the um the things to, to look out for instead of all these delays um yeah jennifer when you're saying that about all the symptoms you need to look out for i mean it's it seems almost obvious that if you have a patient coming into you with their in their record primary breast cancer and they have back pain that's that should be going off you know yeah. ringing but it's not but it's not no. but you, you can't you know you need that information to make those decisions, and without the kind of that that knowledge and that education, then is the onus on us to know? Well, yeah, that's one of the things I said, and you were saying earlier how you you fought for to stay in the system for longer. So, to a certain extent, it is. It, it's not it, it isn't the ideal that the the woman or the person with the cancer should be the person who is the most knowledgeable but equally you are the person who knows yourself best and it is very hard then having to go and fight with your GP yeah. but I think that it is if you know that something is wrong you are entitled to a second opinion and even talking you need to, to be a strong person you have to be strong to do which, that some of the women are very strong yeah. others i can't picture doing that and also you believe that this is the person they are the specialist they they know better than me but i think the unfortunately that's not always the case we would love the world to be very different 
but it is it's that I think people having that awareness to know that they do know themselves best and they have to fight and they're entitled to second opinions they're entitled you know there is even at a primary cancer diagnosis you are entitled to second opinions you do not have to go down the route hopefully now things have changed in the you know in terms of people asking for slightly different maybe management plans and I think clinicians are a lot more open to taking that on board obviously there's there's usually certain guidelines and certain limits to what can be done but it is about I think that that that, that, again that knowledge is power and at the moment that knowledge has to come from the individual yeah I think I think uh, certainly from from my experience had I had the knowledge of the red flags I certainly would have pushed more um, whenever I got my back pain because I didn't know it was connected but had I been aware of that um, I would have been able to self-advocate for myself um, and that is something definitely that the support of other women in the group certainly gives you the the, the courage and I don't know if the determination is, is the right word um, but we we talk about that in our meetings occasionally you know about you know asking for a different type of scan or a different area to be scanned because you have concerns and and really you we should be doing that as as you say Neve, we we know our own bodies and if we've got an ache or a pain somewhere that is unusual and that hasn't been there before um we need to speak up about it mm-hmm. as soon as possible. And um, one of the things that was kind of brought to light for for me and you was the genetic testing through Cheryl. I believe she got bra- BRCA she testing. Bra- yes, eventually, uh, eventually she fought mm-hmm. for it, mm-hmm. and somebody then helped to uh, make the right connection. And she eventually uh, was uh, it was discovered that she carries the, the BRCA two gene mutation. Um, so all along, she was very, very highly likely to succumb to a female cancer, and she's since had other um, surgeries to remove female parts and um, to try and stop it going there as well. You know, ovarian cancer. You know, um, so yeah. And it was kind of through that discussion with Cheryl that you knew that you could ask yes for I, that as yeah, well i had asked for that um asked the oncologist about must be about nine months ago now probably um yeah. it did take quite a while because these things do and that's fine i i appreciate that thankfully it came back negative negative yeah. which was a huge relief not for me personally but for my children particularly you know erin being female um but within northern ireland we're actually very lucky in terms of the the support for her patients with hereditary cancers, the, the BRCA clinic within the city hospital is actually quite unique in that they do try and bring, that it's not quite a one-stop shop, but that you come to one clinic and you can meet all of the people you need to meet. And that is quite unusual. So there is very good expertise here in Northern Ireland for hereditary cancers. And there is you know again when we talk about northern ireland the fact that it is quite a small country actually that is sometimes a good thing in terms of us knowing our genetic background and our genetic links but again it's about 
having the it's not even I don't think courage isn't the right but having that that reassurance behind you that from the knowledge to know that you can ask these questions and that you're not you know that you should be pushing for this and there are certain criteria when they'll look at whether they think it's worth not worth um where you qualify for the the genetic testing because it isn't that easy it isn't that there's a one single test and it's a, a yes no answer the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes are actually really really large genes and there can be mutations throughout that entire gene there's also mutations that are they're known as variants of unknown significance so that you can have a mutation but it might not necessarily put you at higher risk of cancer so in those scenarios what do you do so it's about making sure that the information that has been tested for is actionable, that we can do something about it. And that, you know, then, so the testing, as I said, there are reasons. Sometimes it isn't as simple, oh, I'm just going to send people for genetic testing. They have to know, is there a particular mutation that is linked to that family that is linked to cancer? And then they test for that mutation rather than, just testing the entire gene. A very specific test, then yes, and you need and knowledge yes. beforehand. And it is very rare. BRCA1 mutations, sporadic, sporadic uh, BRCA1 mutations where there is no family history is are incredibly rare. Pretty much, we would almost say there are none. So really, there does need to be that family history. Obviously, we know in years gone by, sometimes family history hasn't always... It, it, not all the information is there people died before of a death and you didn't know why so again I think the awareness for us to talk to our families be we willing to ask the the hard questions that all of that again is that knowledge that can help improve and there are certain treatments then that are more applicable to people who have a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation so having that information can change the treatment the treatment pathway yeah and, and such a huge part of this is research and science because even with the likes of a, a BRCA mutation the consultant told my mum yes for the one we tested for you don't have it but that doesn't mean that you don't have a mutation that we're not aware of mm-hmm. um, so science has a huge part to play there and it's through cancer research that we, that can kind of guide better testing and more personalized medicine like what you're working on Nave. Mm-hmm. um yeah can you can you tell us what what your research area is more specifically sure so um my research for pretty much all of my research career has focused on breast cancer research started off actually working on those hereditary breast cancers and from that kind of have continued to to work in that area we particularly focus on a type of breast cancer known as triple negative breast cancer. And this is a, um, so there are different types of breast cancer. I think, you know, this is obviously where the improvements are coming is by understanding the different types of cancers and then trying to tailor treatments according to that. So there are cancers that are driven that are estrogen receptor positive er positive and these tend to be driven by the hormone estrogen so therefore if we can deplete estrogen that is one way of treating it there are other cancers that are driven by an amplification of a gene known as her2 
and her too again tends to drive the cancers to be to grow more and again if we can come up with a treat we have treatments that block that signaling pathway and therefore can can help um reduce the cancer triple negative is basically none of those so unfortunately it's a it's a diagnosis of not being something as opposed to actually being something and because of that really it's very heterogeneous there are, you know if you ask how many types of triple negative breast cancer there are really it's how many types of people there are with triple negative breast cancer to a certain extent we are trying our best to reach the stage where in the long run everybody's treat everybody's treatment plan is based purely on their cancer unfortunately we're not quite there we're still in the era of maybe trying to put people into a group of your cancer is most similar to these and based on that we think this is the best treatment that will work for you so triple negative breast cancer as i said is quite is quite different to some of the other forms of breast cancer in that it tends to occur in younger women and um the the rate of relapse is quite different as I said you're talking here about uh, relapsing 22 years later which is quite a lot like obviously a, a long time triple negative breast cancer if it does relapse tends to relapse within the first five years even sooner usually really that rate of, um, of, of the cancer coming back is very high within the first year the first three years so we are seeing what it tends is that there's some people who are receiving are, are having their treatment and getting great clinical benefit and in actual fact these women tend their relapse rate is actually lower than the background population these you can never say cured but the the chances of relapse are very low but then these other women are basically going through all of this chemotherapy having all of the horrible side effects but getting none of the clinical benefit but when these women present in clinic we don't know which which group these people are going to fall into so what we're trying to do is try and understand what are the tests we need to do to be able to help predict are you at you know uh, are you in the group where we think you're going to receive benefit from the chemotherapy let's go with that you know that is the best treatment for you it's going to work and then if you're not if we think that you're not going to benefit from that the current chemo well what else can we do we need to understand what are those things that are driving the cancers like for estrogen receptor positive we know it's the estrogen signaling or for her too so what are those drivers and then what can we do to take advantage of that from a clinical point of view because really we know if we can get that treatment right the first time the chances of the disease coming back are much lower they're not neg like they're not zero but the if you can get that treatment right, right from the beginning the chances are the best yeah um could i just mention that we we've got a fantastic opportunity coming up um because the exhibition is opening again at the end of march the uh, thursday the 30th of march in uh, francis mccrory's art gallery in forestside shopping center um the footfall is like 400 people an hour walking past the gallery um and it's going to be on during the Easter holidays. So we're very aware of the responsibility that, that we have and the opportunity that we have to actually raise awareness. Um, there will be women walking, but this doesn't just affect women. It affects their whole families, as you very well know, Erin. Uh, and uh, 
children and uh, so we've got this fantastic opportunity where um, we're hoping that uh, to man it or woman it for for <laughs> uh, during most of the hours that we've got so that somebody would because the, the impact I've seen the impact of having some of the women there in amongst their images to be able to talk to people and every time I do a talk about the exhibition or my fellowship panel on which the um it was based on on the exhibition and I do talks to camera clubs all around Ireland and the engagement with people is is incredible and you know men come up to me and shake my hand and cry and say my mum died of cancer or or breast cancer and that's the point where I say you know she died of secondary breast cancer this is what this is about and um, the care that you're mum got you probably identify with some of the things that that you know that I've said it was sadly lacking um in in many respects and uh so to be in Forestside with that totally different demographic than you would get coming into an art gallery or um you know that kind of uh, space um is, is incredible and so we're going to have um, information available and we'll have some of the women available as well to talk to people and we also every time every location we do the exhibition we do some sort of a little bit like this um, and discuss issues and have some of the women talking and we will do the same at Forestside and I'm thinking I'm not to put you in the spot me <laughs> But you just seem like an amazing... It would be a perfect person to have sitting on a panel, you know, and we try to uh, live stream it and it certainly gets recorded. And, um, no, I'd with that I, th- I think it's something this is, you know... I think having worked on breast cancer for so long, it, it sometimes you become detached from it. Um, as I said, because I've... I suppose over the years, uh, a lot of work on hereditary breast cancer, I um, have had the opportunity to meet a lot of women who have either been diagnosed with cancer um, or else are living, we, it's a term called the previvors now, these people who are at high risk of getting cancer but haven't developed cancer and it's a huge minefield and I think you know for a long time I, I was very maybe scientific about it of well if I thought I had high risk of cancer I would whip them out and whip them off and you know there was nothing to it but then realizing there is so much more to it and having that opportunity to share information that is I think that is our power and that's what we have to do and you know as we said I I know some people are very against the whole pink breast cancer the fluffiness of it but I do think that is really important because we still need to breast cancer can you know it the survival rates are very high in general and we need the awareness of primary breast cancer we need the awareness that actually you know this is something that you know there are treatments for and we are making progress but then equally we need that the darker pink side that's and that's what we need i think this is where from a research point of view we need to push 
and also from an awareness point of view we need to continue to push. And there are now some uh, figures that show that almost 40% of the population do not even know what secondary breast cancer is. Uh, so I think, yes, it's definitely, you know, and actually I think that women who have had primary breast cancer to a large extent are being, or to a certain extent are being let down by not being informed of everything that yeah, they need to totally. look out for. Mm-hmm. And then at some stage then they fall into the secondary breast cancer. And I don't know whether some of that was just the, well, we don't know what to do if secondary breast cancer comes back, so let's stick our fingers in our ears. I think there is and I th- so, yeah. But now we are t- the treatments that are becoming available, as I said, it is we are getting to the stage, maybe not for everybody, but for some people where it can be a chronic disease, you know, that we can treat it. There's amazing immunotherapy. There is um, some of the new antibody drug conjugates that are making a huge difference to, as you said, what was before, unfortunately, a death sentence. It's not people are getting to the stage where they can live and hopefully live well. And that's another key thing is, you know, we have to make sure we're taking into account quality of life. And that is something within research is becoming more important of, you know, yes, we might have a, a treatment, but it, it's unbearable to the, the side effects of the treatment are unbearable. That's that's not 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 a way to live either it. And it's not even the side effect. It's not even just the side effects of the treatment. Um women that are on say weekly chemotherapy or three weekly chemotherapy they spend um all maybe one full day waiting around for a district nurse to come and uh, clean out their their pick line Mm -hmm. the next day getting hospital appointments getting their bloods tested for their neutrophils and and all the rest of it and then the next day um waiting around for their number to be called for them to have the the chemotherapy and you know, I may be paraphrasing this, but for somebody that has a limited amount of time and wants to live well and doesn't even know if that chemotherapy is going to be of any benefit to be wasting half their week waiting around, you know, yeah. sh- there could be better systems in place for many of the women that are going for treatment. It's not the same in all the, the centres, I have to say that, but to be waiting around all day um, getting, uh, you know, on, on a on a nurse coming to the your your door, you don't know when they're coming. Just to change the pick line, um, or to to clean it out, and then the next day, you you know, they've got to be at the hospital at nine o'clock and maybe not be seen till till three o'clock or or whatever, you know, it. That's half their week. Yeah, there needs to be much more of a balance. I mean, mm-hmm. we we all want to live well, but um, trying to schedule your life around your appointments and how long they're going to potentially take is you know it's is impossible sometimes a, a great example of that actually was when we were organizing the event for international women's day yeah, yeah. which falls on the 8th of march mm-hmm. but that's a wednesday and that's a treatment day for lots of women yeah mm-hmm. so we had to reschedule to the next day on the thursday yeah. and for you know, so many of us just living in a cancer-free world, we would never even think about mm-hmm. that. Um, but and it's something you know, even um, preparing for the exhibition and and taking photographs. You know, the number of times where I got a call, look, Jennifer, really sorry, can't make it today. Um, feeling really, really sick after the chemo yesterday. You know, and that's just 
something that goes on or no I'm sorry having chemo no I'm waiting on my blood then then it's the scans as well you know scans every three months and then waiting for weeks sometimes on the results of those scans and we know that they can be reported on sooner um, that's pretty torturous that's yeah. that's one of the the most difficult parts of of this whole um disease uh, i had my last scan on wednesday there i get scanned every three months a ct scan with contrast and waiting for those results is complete and utter torture um there's no other way to describe it. Um, whenever the phone rings, generally I would get my scan results via a phone call, but I can go up and see the oncologist. Um, but generally I like to be at the hospital as little as possible, so I'm quite happy to take them over the phone. And the day that you know the phone is going to ring, uh, my husband just knows not to, not to come anywhere near me, just, you know... <laughs> It's, yeah. it's it's torture. And it is torture. It kind of forces you to live three months at a time. It does. Because you got your yeah. your results through before Christmas, and then it was like, oh, we can enjoy Christmas, we and that's en- the yeah. new year. And yeah, it's just it's waiting for that, and three months comes around so quickly as yeah. well. It's quite difficult to live in twelve week cycles. It yeah. really is, particularly you know. We want to go on holiday. You know, we want to plan things as much as we possibly can, and. It's it's difficult to do that if you're waiting on scam results because that can affect your holiday insurance, can be an absolute nightmare to get whenever you you have a stage four cancer diagnosis. Um, you know, it just it just it's hard. It's very hard. I think, you know, you're raising there, there's so much more, as you said, things like life or insurance, travel insurance, you know, what do you need to declare to your your health insurance? And again, so much of that until there are the proper numbers, until we understand the scale of what's going on, none of that can be addressed. And there's there's just so much more, so much practical day-to-day things that, again, as you said, living in a cancer-free world doesn't even occur to you. And it's only by meeting people who are living through this um, that you can get that awareness but un- again until more people are talking about it talking about it openly talking about it freely we can't change anything and all we can do is now is all shout and hope that together our, our voice becomes even louder and you know that's why the exhibition it was called seen to be heard and actually to um what i've noticed as a very involved observer let let's call me is that the women themselves through the involvement in this project and and in um, you know their own support group I've seen them talk out much much more about the uh, difficulties that they have living with secondary breast cancer but not one of them are doing it for themselves they're doing it for those coming after them and even you know one of the women who was particularly keen to sort of um, you, you know live the bright side of of life. I've seen her her uh, posts change because I can see that um, you know she's now focusing on the, the younger ones. I mean this is this is the number one killer in across the UK for women between the ages of thirty five and sixty four, and coincidentally the youngest that I've photographed is 
35 and the oldest was 64 and that you know it's almost like I've caught the total demographic Mm -hmm. and yet I know that there's still much more you know I have two more to photograph and um, everywhere that the exhibition goes um, you know we ask if anybody would like to be photographed and be part of the ongoing exhibition and then um, you know um, in the the next one in Forestside is still going to be the 23 women then it's going back down to Dublin to um, Dublin Camera Club have a fantastic exhibition space in Camden Street and with all the issues that they've had um, with uh, Vicky Phelan and the cervical cancer you know actually the response that I get down south from 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 everybody that I've I've spoken to at all the camera clubs and and all the events, is is incredibly engaging because this, the, you know the whole cervical thing, was was so much on the news. It was such a big deal, and um, you know so they're actually, I'm not saying that their uh, care for secondary breast cancer is any better because I don't actually know, but. They're almost aw- maybe seem to be a wee bit more aware. The general population maybe seems to be a little bit more aware of um, women's health issues and how difficult it can be within the the whole um, healthcare in- environment. Mm-hmm. It seems to be a, th- a theme throughout mm-hmm. it and in, mm-hmm. in multiple different countries across the world. Actually, oh definitely, so, uh, yeah. And yeah. this is why you know to have this opportunity mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is fantastic yeah and we take every opportunity that we get yeah. to do <laughs> and like I say the women themselves I mean jo- Joanne is um, fantastic at, at speaking and some of the other women really enjoy mm-hmm. the opportunity mm-hmm. to get to mm-hmm. tell their stories and we have actually rec- as Joanne mentioned we've recorded many of them on video but as part of this whole process I asked them to write down their uh, their stories uh, so I have them recorded on mm-hmm. on paper mm-hmm. as as well, and mm-hmm. at some stage I'll put it into a book, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, photographic be and their, their uh-huh. stories because uh-huh. um, tragically, and it's hard for me to say this. This mm-hmm. is going to be part of their legacy. Mm-hmm. It's already part of Vanda's legacy, and mm-hmm. it, it's it will always live with me that she never got to see her photograph. Yeah, and that was that was quite hard hitting. Would a few of us had travelled down to Oma, Oma at the Stroll Centre where the exhibition mm-hmm. was for a few weeks, um, just a month or January. so past mm-hmm. January, and it was the first time that we'd seen Vanda's photograph, um, and it really did hugely hit home mm-hmm. with yeah. all of us just seeing her picture up on the wall and knowing that she was you know she was no longer with us yeah and, uh, and that is the stark reality mm-hmm. of this horrible disease you know I know that someday I'll be um it, it will take me um I hope it's a long way in the future but um you know that's the one certainty with secondary breast cancer. But what, what we're trying to do in the meantime is, yes, like Jennifer says, we're trying to pave the way for ladies coming behind us. But there are certain things that, that can change now. Um, the audit is a perfect example of that, yeah. and that will make a huge difference. Um, and the other thing is 
please give us secondary breast cancer nurses. Yes. Um, when I was diagnosed with my primary, just, just to go back to that, and, and you know, we're talking 22 years ago, I was so well cared for by my breast care nurse, um, Alison. She, she used to call me up every few weeks to make sure everything was okay. Was there any questions I had, whatever? Um, she used to see me at the, when I was up for treatment. Um, and the support that she gave me was absolutely unbelievable, along with the support of our two main cancer charities. I, I belong to a support group, um, Cancer Focus, the Ulster Cancer Foundation, as it was then. And I got great support from them too for, for lots of years. Uh, fast forward 22 years, whenever you would think that things would have improved from that point of view, um, I could not believe how silent it was when I was given my diagnosis. You've got secondary breast cancer, we're going to give you palliative, we can treat you, but it will be palliative treatment. Um, there was no one to phone apart from the, the chemo helpline, which is kind of really there for, you know, if you're spiking a temperature or you're concerned about your, your, your health. There was nothing really there. There was no one there to talk about, you know, talk this through with me. Try and give me a little bit of encouragement because I came out of the hospital thinking that, okay, they've told me I'm on palliative treatment. I wonder when I'm going into the hospice. Mm, you know, right. because mm -hmm. that, that your brain yep. makes that connection mm -hmm. until someone sits you down and explains, well, actually, it doesn't always mean that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that support is just so, so important. And support groups, again, whenever I'm um, about a month or so after I was diagnosed, I was in a really, really unhealthy place mentally. Um, Aaron probably yeah. picked up on that yeah. at the time. Um, it was because I couldn't find anyone to speak to. There were no support groups Must that I could so find lonely. in Northern Ireland. There were, you know, there were there were support groups online um, in England and you know, and America, all the rest of it. But there wasn't anywhere that I could go and sit in a room with other ladies and just talk about it as it is and not be afraid of um, you know, opening yourself up to, for example, your family members who don't mm -hmm. always need to hear all of your fears and um, you know, it, it's better to talk about that with someone who's walking in your shoes, who, who really understands it. And I remember phoning our two, our two big um, charities here in Northern Ireland, no, sorry, I didn't phone them, I emailed them, asking was there a specific to secondary breast cancer was there a secondary breast cancer support group because I had got fabulous support from the primary breast cancer support group and there wasn't there wasn't and I didn't feel that I could go along to a primary breast cancer support group because you know we're we're singing off a different hymn sheet as far as our treatment and you know our life expectancy etc um, now there is one now one of the charities have set one up now, but it's it's mainly for younger women, I think. Okay. Yeah, but uh, thank goodness we all find each other though through mm -hmm. through the exhibition and through we also have we're affiliated with um, it's a, a charity called Make Seconds Count. It's um, it was set up in Scotland and they saw, saw the need for a face to face support group in Northern Ireland. 
and uh, we meet once a month in the Agape Centre in the Lisburn Road and that's actually where I met Jennifer yeah. mm-hmm. and got involved in the exhibition so um, thank goodness I found my tribe you know there are women out there who don't know that we exist um, we've tried to get leaflets left in GP surgeries and hospital waiting rooms and and you know they're left but they're never put out and you know how is anybody supposed to know that there is help out there? You know, there are other women out there like you. Mm-hmm. It's um, just yeah. difficult to find them. And the change that we've seen in you since being involved yeah. in those support groups. I mean, you're out more nights than me. Uh, <laughs> I you know, doing everything. She's the first one to put her hands up. Yeah, whenever I such a great yeah, social yeah. life yeah. out in the town and but everything. But, you know, yeah. being, being, you know there, whenever you're amongst a group, of these women yes at times there are tears but the laughter the camaraderie um the dark humor the dark humor <laughs> exactly um it talking laughing about you know the the darkest of things and, and you know we sat in the ho- hotel bar in oma after that uh, opening night and how many of there was uh, half a dozen oh, or seven or eight of us there, there, there yeah. and we were the only people in the the bar but the the uh the hotel staff were just amazed at because they knew why we were there and all these women you know fantastically presented you know all dressed up in joanne and our sparkly yeah. stuff <laughs> as as always you know and you know that's but that's what they present to the outside world and what i wanted to show with this exhibition is what goes on behind the scenes and to show the physical and emotional pain and that in a sense is what we were doing that night in oma as well you know we went through a few bottles and um nearly had to send the barman out at one stage to shop across the road to get us <laughs> some crisps but you know oh. the the laughter they the, we sat till well after midnight and the next morning the hotel staff were just talking to me about all they could hear was laughter coming and you can only do that with people of a like mind you know a peer support support. it's as I said I know you've mentioned some of the the local charities in Northern Ireland and there is they try to give as much support as they can but as I said it has been focused on primary breast cancer or the primary cancers in general but recognizing now and building that community as you said finding your tribe those people that you can speak honestly and openly with who understand what you're going through because as you said you your family I'm sure you want to protect them from some of the things that that you're feeling and wanting to say but here is this other people who know I'd say they know what you're thinking before you have you say it and having that must be the most powerful and as you said then bringing that closing that circle with the secondary breast cancer nurse uh, support within Northern Ireland. It's vital. Make, it, it is, is. absolutely. It, it it's what will make the difference to some the, people getting through that journey. Yeah, absolutely. The one, per, the one breast, secondary breast cancer the specialist nurse that exists is paid for by a charity, not by the health service. And one thing that I think that we've been able to do um, throughout all the publicity with um, and the hard hitting images, etc., is make some of the, the cancer charities sit up and listen even Macmillan 
you know, we've had long conversations with them and they didn't realise the the issues that the, the women face. And, you know, I keep getting people say, oh, but there is a, a, a specialist nurse um, in, you know, wherever. And I said, there's not. There's only one and it's paid for by it. You know, you're talking about uh, primary uh, breast cancer support nurses um, we've um, one girl she'll not mind me m mentioning her name um, Elaine wonderful wonderful uh, it's sometimes hard to talk about her but she has she has head and neck cancer as well as secondary breast cancer and she, ironically she's also had breast cancer in her neck as well removed anyway she had her voice box removed um, because well, she didn't know at the time whether it was the secondary breast cancer or whether it was a head and neck cancer. And she was relieved to find, uh, relieved probably the wrong word, Elaine, you can correct me, but um, you know, to know that it was um, head and neck cancer that had caused her voice box to be removed um, was a better result than knowing that it was breast cancer. One, because one time uh, when I met her for coffee, not long afterwards, she came directly from a trip from a, a, an appointment at the Royal and she said Jennifer I had four specialties at my appointment I had uh, my oncologist a specialist um, clinical nurse um, a physiotherapist an occupational therapist and did I mention speech therapist so it was five and she said if this had turned out to be secondary breast cancer, I would have had no one. And I say that she said this, this is all written down, you know, and th that's how she will live out uh, the rest of her lives. And I told her that she will always have a voice. And but yeah, like, you know, when we're hearing how, how common it is, like obviously we know breast cancer in itself is, you know, the number of cases that are happening and the, the, the risks. But, you know, secondary breast cancer, it's not as though it's some rare no, disease no. that isn't happening. Why is there not the support there? Like, wh why mm -hmm. are people just being left to have to either advocate for themselves when they're already going mm -hmm. through so much else? We need that. Right. Somehow we need to get that that specialist care that that extra support and as said fight for the clinical trials to be run here in northern ireland fight for the the treatments that are becoming available to be available in northern ireland as well you know there's nothing i can't imagine what it must be like to hear that there is a treatment but you're not because of your postcode you can't have it yeah. yes that yeah. that's, that's right. just that's or it, to have to travel twice a week it, to fly over yeah. it with all the implications of what flying does to your body and your, your lymph system, um, you know, it, um, whenever you're still going through chemotherapy. And, and missing on then that yeah. support network that is mm -hmm. created by having your treatment. Yeah locally like I, again I know of people who've had to travel to Manchester for yeah. for treatments and it's just <laughs> It's it's not fair, as you said, no. when there's somebody who is has limited time yeah. to have to spend so much time or relocate or relocate. And you know, these are women with, no with families and and dependents, and um, you know, they don't want to be having to try. But some of them would give their right arm to be on a trial, mm -hmm. and yet, um, I mean, one used the words. Uh, uh, I would 
They won't let me go on a trial, but they'll watch me die before it is approved. And, um, you know, there's, there's women in, in our group would, would give anything to be on a trial based in Northern Ireland. Not have, and actually, um, Cheryl herself has asked about going on to a trial and her oncologist told her, I'm sorry, Cheryl, we do not have the time. You would have to source the correct trial yourself. And I think the NHS, if she, if she was to source the, the, the correct trial, so she needs some kind of expertise, I don't know how a, a, an everyday person is meant to source a correct trial, um, but all the travel expenses and um, overnight stays and everything would have to be paid for by the uh, by Cheryl herself. I think the initial, I'm correct in saying the initial appointment, um, to see if the, it was covered, I believe it, it was, was covered, covered and the drugs that, are the drugs covered. I think so. I think so. But all the expense of, uh, you know, flying over or or as I say, relocating, uh, it's it's just not an option. You know, if you're faced with the possibility of, and they won't allow you to go on to a trial until you're pretty far down the line anyway. So, um, you know, it's not, it's not fair. It's, it's just not, not fair. fair. It's not fair. It's 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 so frustrating to see some some ladies gone too soon simply yes. because of their geographical location. Yeah. It's it's immoral. I, I I just can't get my head around the fact that it is happening day and daily. It's, it's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it needs to change. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that's been a huge theme of this discussion here is change. We just and whether that's a, just a little bit for now and a big bet for later for the ones coming after um but that's the most but we we need to start somewhere we are already you know apart from the women themselves and the impact that being involved in all this has had uh, on the women and empowering them to speak out and and to help to connect women and you know in a support group um seen to be heard itself has also been acknowledged by cancer focus ani uh, you know, some of the women were campaigning, um, Julie Lillis, for example, before uh, seemed to be heard to have um, an, an audit, but um, Cancer Focus and I have acknowledged seemed to be heard's part in actually getting that over the line. Mm-hmm. And that's credit to the women who, and I'm not going to use the word brave because they're, you know, they do not consider that, you know, but to, to volunteer to be part of. Um, to become a, a topless mod, not, they're not all topless, you know. But um, to the put first themselves out there to put themselves yeah. out there for the sake of others, um, you know, that's credit to every single one of them that did this, and every single woman that has campaigned uh, before uh, seemed to be heard. But they've acknowledged that. So now we need another charity to step up to fund another cancer nurse, and not just one. Obviously, we you know we need the Department of Health to do it, but like that's not going to happen. Yeah, you know, we've got to be realistic. We need another big cancer charity to set to to fund a nurse, and then we need more nurses. There are five health trusts in Northern Ireland. We need a secondary breast cancer specialist nurse in every one of them, and multiple secondary breast cancer specialist nurses in in some of the the, the bigger mm-hmm. trusts. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so 
I would really just encourage anybody listening to come along and hear the stories of these women. We've, we've heard the story of my mum, Joanne, but there's many others with different stories. All these women are unique and individual in their own experiences. Um, so please take the time to come and listen to what they have to say, because with the support of us and just kind of disseminating that education out is how the, that's how we're going to affect change, essentially. Um, Thank you, ladies, for joining us here this morning. It was a really interesting discussion. Um, it was hard at times, I think, too. Um, and I know I've learned a lot from this. And I think everybody at the table has learned something from each other. Um, so thank you very much for joining us. Thanks thank for having you, us. Thanks for organising this. It's been fantastic.